Welcome to another episode of the podcast On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Think for a moment about what you're doing at the moment. You're listening to a podcast. You may have just discovered this podcast, or perhaps you've been listening since the beginning. While it's been challenging for me to keep up with my own schedule, my intention is to have a podcast come out once a week. You may also be engaged in driving somewhere or doing the dishes, though perhaps you've curled up in a chair with a hot cup of tea in order to listen. So in a sense, we're gathering together, even if not exactly at the same time or place. My guess is that you're listening because you're hoping to learn something, maybe have your views challenged, or come to a better understanding of yourself in the world. Perhaps you also think of yourself as joining a small, though turns out, rapidly growing group of people interested in how we become who we are. Had it occurred to you that it's a little bit like going to church? We're getting together on a regular basis with a specific focus. Today we're talking about religion, which makes it seem even more like church. Of course, I'm not making any pretenses of being a pastor or priest. I'm simply pointing out that this pattern of people getting together around something they care about is the most fundamental thing about religion. To make that clear, let's embark on a short history of the term religion. We get the word religion from the Latin religio, which is spelled just like religion except without the last letter N. The reason why I'm using the ancient Latin term is that, as we'll soon see, it means something different from what we mean today by religion. One of the early surviving examples of the use of the term occurs in a play from the second century BC in which the word means something like conscientiousness or being scrupulous. A person with religio was someone who both had a sense of duty or moral obligation and acted on that obligation. Note that these early uses of religio have nothing to do with gods, the supernatural, or the afterlife. They only have to do with a sense of duty. The original meaning of religio tells us that it is about being a responsible person. And responsibility, of course, always presupposes a someone to whom one is responsible. We could say that the essential feature of religiosity is ethical in nature. The philosopher Emmanuel Levinas is widely known for his claim that ethics is first philosophy. What that simply means is, on Levinas's account, the most basic concern of philosophy should be how we treat one another, not to mention, of course, how we treat ourselves. But where does this sense of obligation come from? It's possible to imagine obligation based internally or externally. In the first instance, the ethical command comes from within. We compel ourselves to do the, the right thing. In the second instance, what compels us is something outside of ourselves. One might immediately think that what compels us from outside would be God. But there is no reason to think that this is necessarily the case. Levinas believes that our obligation to treat other people with respect is based simply on the fact that the other exists. Levinas insists that, that it's the sheer presence of the other 
that demands our respect. If we take someone or something to have the status of religio, I feel obligated to do something, to keep my oath, to fulfill my obligations to my family, or whatever it is that I think is required of me. That something is required need not have anything to do with a supernatural realm or a higher power, let alone God. Here we're talking about something like the sacred. Now, I realize that as soon as I use this term, your mind likely jumps to God or heaven or some other religious-sounding category. But the sacred need not be God or a heavenly place. It can simply be an obligation, as in the phrase, my sacred duty. I can have a sense of duty to my country, my parents, my friends, and my neighbors. On such a reading, not doing one's duty is a sacrilege. We tend to associate duties and ceremonies with a transcendent reality. But the sense of duty found in religio is to whatever we consider sacred. If we say, for instance, that human life is sacred, something that I think many of us would affirm, that immediately says we have an obligation to our fellow human beings. In this sense, sacred means whatever we particularly value. Let's consider a recent example that helps clarify what it means to think of something as sacred. In 2012, the Swedish government officially recognized the Church of Kapimism as a legitimate religious organization. Its sacred symbols are Control-C and Control-V, the shortcuts on a computer for copy and paste. In the Church of Kapimism, file sharing is considered to be sacred because the Church is committed to making information available to everyone. That's right. The sacred of Kapimism is file sharing. Okay. I realize that you're probably thinking, that's ridiculous. Religion can't possibly be about file sharing. And you might point to the fact that the founder of said religion was a 19-year-old philosophy student. But I don't think this is ridiculous at all. If you realize that having information is a kind of power, then this church is about allowing that power to flow to everyone. Well, you might think, oh, these people just want legal protection for downloading stuff from the Internet. There's no reason that sharing information cannot be seen as sacred. The real problem is that we are so conditioned to use the term sacred in regard to gods and established religions that such a use seems, well, just a bit crazy. But that says more about our assumptions than anything else. However, there's another aspect of religio we need to consider. Many scholars speculate that the term goes back to an even more ancient term that means something like binding together. If we consider religio from this vantage point, we can say that religio is whatever connects us to our fellow human beings. An obvious example of people being connected is certainly worshiping a particular god. But people can, can be connected by various things, a love of sport, a respect for democracy, 
or an urgency to end world poverty. Apart from the fact that we are not used to speaking this way, there is no reason in principle to say that such thinking makes no sense. Indeed, I suspect that many people across the world think of each human life as sacred. They may do so because they see human beings as created in God's image, but they may equally do so simply because they consider human beings to be inherently worthy of respect. So what we've seen so far is that religio involves a sense of the sacred and the binding of a community together. In other words, we can think of religio as constituted both by what we take to be sacred and how that taking something to be sacred binds us together. If you value democracy, then you will likely see other people who value democracy as allies or friends, people with whom you have something deep and important in common. In a nutshell, that gives you religion. Put another way, you may actually be more religious than you think. Just because you don't find yourself in an established, organized religion doesn't mean that you aren't religious. And you can probably guess where I'm going with this. If religion is about the sacred that binds a group of people together, then you are almost assuredly religious in some way, and most likely in many ways. But you might be asking about now, so how did we get to the place where the word religion means something so different from religio? Let's follow the history of the term. Religio was first applied to Christianity around the year 1200 to indicate specific religious orders. The Benedictines were one religio. The Franciscans were another religio. However, the term religion began changing significantly around 1500. Sociologically, as long as the church remained united, it was quite possible to define someone as being a Christian on the basis of that person being part of a social group, namely the church. One could even speak meaningfully of a country as being Christian, since the essential properties of the whole could be ascribed to each of its individuals. Yet once the Western Church, that's to say Roman Catholicism, came to be divided, such classification was no longer possible. To be sure, the very idea that one could determine whether someone counted as a Christian by way of adherence to doctrine goes back at least as far as Roman times, when Christianity was first persecuted as a deviant religious sect and then became the state religion. It is precisely at this time namely 325 AD, that the Emperor Constantine brought various Christian leaders together to produce a document that defined the official doctrines of the Church. If you think about it, such a move was necessary if Christianity was to be the official religion of something as large and powerful as the Roman Empire. Having a creed was intended to define who was in and who was out. That was even more the case with the Code of Theodosius of 380, which required that everyone in the Roman Empire affirm the Trinity. Those who chose not to affirm the Trinity were beheaded. And yes, there were actual people who were beheaded because they believed the wrong thing. 
Of course, one can hardly imagine that all of those Romans, and then later Europeans, were thoroughly versed in the Nicene Creed and understood exactly what it is they were supposed to be affirming on each and every line. Further, there is nothing more complex in Christian doctrine than the Trinity. I suspect that if each Christian had been interrogated as to their views regarding the Trinity, thousands of people would have had to have been killed. Of course, the vast majority of people in medieval Europe were illiterate, and the mass was said in a language that they did not understand. They had very little idea of exactly what it was that the church affirmed. Still, they were part of the church, and through the church came salvation. However, the Reformation changed all of that. What had been a system of salvation based on being part of an institution turned into a system based on holding the right set of doctrines. The term religion was created around 1500, helped make sense of all of the different forms of Christianity that began to arise in the wake of the Reformation. In other words, the word religion was first used to speak of differing forms of Christianity. Back then, it had absolutely nothing to do with other religions. It was only about Christianity. So one could speak of Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, Anglicanism as different religions. We don't normally talk like that today, though I do remember when I was studying at a Roman Catholic seminary that one of those students asked me what religion I was. I was a bit taken aback. My reply was, well, the same as yours, Christianity. With the advent of the marketplace of Christian denominations, religion became, by necessity, a personal, private matter. One could cite the United States and the founders' unwillingness to designate a state religion. But one could simply point to any place where freedom of religion became the norm in Europe or elsewhere. There simply was no way to allow all of these different conceptions of Christianity to have a part in politics. So religion needed to be rethought as something private, something you believed on your own time, something that you couldn't bring into the political realm. However, in order for this change to take place, there needed to be a coherent conception of what counted as religion. Remember, this is a relatively new word in English, and so it needed some kind of definition. In 1624, Lord Herbert of Cherbury published a text that proved highly influential in defining what counts as religion. For Herbert, religion is composed of beliefs, particularly those regarding a supreme power, practices, primarily about the worship of that power, and ethics, a code of conduct for life that affects eternal rewards and punishments. That was the first attempt to define what made something count as a religion. Then, three years later, Hugo Grotius publishes a text titled On the Truthfulness of the Christian Religion, in which Christianity is depicted as primarily a set of doctrines to which one could assent. Given that there were so many Christian doctrines one could believe, there arose various denominations and such basic distinctions as Arminianism and Calvinism. Bear in mind that such a contrast requires seeing the various versions of Christianity as being primarily defined in terms of doctrine. But to get to a way of thinking of religion in terms of Christianity, which is in turn 
defined primarily in terms of doctrine. John Locke's The Reasonableness of Christianity, which comes out in 1695, provides us with and here I'm quoting, the lowest common denominator of belief in Jesus as the Messiah. In other words, Locke is saying that all Christians believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Locke takes this to be the most basic Christian belief. But Locke's point is that each denomination of Christianity has different ideas of exactly what it means to say that Jesus is the Messiah and how that belief then gets worked out in practice. But Locke only provides a way of thinking about how the various Christian denominations relate to one another. It's only with the philosopher Immanuel Kant that Western thinkers were able to get a truly essentialized conception of religion. Here's what Locke says. There may certainly be different historical confessions, although these have nothing to do with religion itself but only with the changes used to further religion. And there may be just as many religious books, but there can only be one religion which is valid for all men and at all times. Thus, the different confessions can scarcely be more than the vehicles of religion. These are fortuitous and may vary with differences in place and time. Let's try to unpack this statement. Kant is saying that religion is a universal thing. Everyone has it, though there are different beliefs and different books that embody it. Islam has the Quran. Buddhism has the Tripitaka. But Kant is assuming that while there are many forms of religion, in the end, they are all the same in the sense of embodying this thing called religion. Of course, it should not surprise you that Kant assumes that the ultimate form of religion, that is the truly, truly real religion, is Christianity. All the other religions are pale imitations of Christianity. Put another way, the very way religion has been defined has made Christianity the supreme example of religion, meaning that all of the other religions are assumed to be pale imitations of the one true religion. If you think I'm about to go on a rant about Western hegemony, however, you're going to be disappointed. In an earlier podcast, we talked about how Gadamer makes the point that we all understand things in relation to what we already know. So, of course, we are going to make sense of the new and the different in terms of what we already understand. The difficulty, of course, is that we tend to forget or even overlook the fact that we've tried to understand the new by way of the old. It often takes someone else to remind us of this point, someone to whom our assumptions are not automatic and obvious. You might think that someone who reminds you that your view of the world is not shared by everyone is kind of a pest. I would counter that such a person is a gift. To have someone there to remind us that not everyone shares our assumptions helps us put ourselves in perspective. No doubt, this is truly an example of Western hegemony. But think of it this way. If another culture had come up with the idea of religion, don't you think they would have used their own religion as the model for all the rest?
Today we realize just how problematic such an assumption is, but bear in mind, it was only around the end of the 20th century, that is to say roughly 300 years after Kant makes the statement that I just quoted, that scholars started to realize that starting with Christianity as the model for all other religions is a problem on many different levels. In any case, with such an assumption, anthropologists could go across the world and discover a wide variety of religions, anything that roughly fits into the paradigm of Christianity. It has become kind of an assumption that all cultures are religious. But that is only true because anthropologists started with a Western conception of a religion, which is to say Christianity, and then applied it to whatever they saw in another culture that was somehow like Christianity. Given the complexity of Christianity, all the different factors that make it up, you can always find something in other cultures that seems at least similar. Moreover, however well-intentioned Christian missionaries may have been, they often attempted to portray Christianity as the true religion toward which any indigenous religion had been pointing to all along. For example, Jesuit Christian missionaries to China, and here I'm quoting, wished the Chinese to regard Christianity not as a replacement, not as a new religion, but as the highest fulfillment of their finest aspirations. Here I'm quoting from Owen Chadwick's book titled The Reformation. But then, whatever culture is being evangelized, that culture's religion must be interpreted as some kind of inchoate form of Christianity, something that's been pointing to Christianity all along. On this view, the problem with a particular culture's religion is not its form, but its content, since all religions are the same in terms of form, that is, the form of Christianity. As an example of what we're talking about, when the British colonized India, they invented the term Hinduism. By the way, that term only goes back to 1871. Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism all came into being due to Christian missionaries and scholars who went across the world and labeled anything that seemed remotely like Christianity as a different religion. Put another way, the very idea that all cultures have a religion is an assumption that only arises in Christianity. Not too surprisingly, those Christian missionaries and even secular anthropologists who grew up in Christian cultures are the ones who decided that all cultures are religious, using Christianity as the template for all religions. However, there's another aspect to the development of the concept of religion that is crucial. With religion becoming a private matter, something held inwardly and not shared politically, there arose the distinction of sacred versus secular. If religion can no longer be taken to be a corporate matter, due to the fact that countries were now composed by various denominations of Christianity, then it must become the province of the individual. One can argue that both the Reformation and the Enlightenment greatly contributed to the idea of the individual autonomous self, the self who is able to choose on her own. Since there was a robust set of competing options in Christendom, and since belonging to one meant that one did not and could not belong to another, 
The various splinters of Christianity needed to define themselves in concrete ways, most usually by way of the doctrine that they held, though also by ways of worshipping. A claim that captures both of these aspects might go something like this. We're the people who believe that you need to be dunked in order to be properly baptized. Those other people think merely pouring water overhead is good enough. Of course, to many of us, such a controversy seems trivial at best and divisive at worst. But there's something else going on here. The religion scholar Talal Asad argues that, and here I'm quoting, religion is a modern concept because it has been linked to its Siamese twin, secularism. The idea that there's something like a sacred realm only makes sense if it can be differentiated from something like a secular realm. In other words, the distinctions between theology and philosophy, faith and reason, belief and unbelief, ultimately have a political dimension, just as they did for the ancient Romans and just as they did for Jesus and Paul. For the distinction is really between the authority of the church and the authority of the state. The theologian William T. Kavanaugh points out that what was at issue in the so-called wars of religion was actually, and here I'm quoting, the very creation of religion as a set of privately held beliefs without direct political relevance. In American society, such a separation has been part of the very bedrock of the social and political order ever since the revolution. Though recent events remind us just how fragile and problematic this distinction really is. If religion is about the things that we take to be the most important, how could such beliefs not spill into the political realm? We are now living in a time in which these differences, which were largely papered over to achieve political stability, are becoming more apparent. While one could see this problem in terms of differences between religions, simply the differences within Christianity itself are already problematic, as current conflicts regarding abortion, the Me Too movement, and the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States make clear. Okay, so we've covered a lot of ground so far. What we've seen is that the concept of religion starts out with religio, the belief in something sacred that binds all those who share the same conception of the sacred together. We've seen how religio turns into religion that first only includes forms of Christianity. Then we looked at how other religions came to be defined using the assumptions of Christianity about what a religion should look like. Were those other religions invented, or were they discovered? By now you should be able to see why answering such a question is really difficult. Buddhism, for instance, simply didn't operate as a religion for Buddhists because they didn't have the notion of religion and so couldn't possibly have seen what they were doing as constituting a religion. It was other people who saw what they were doing and then classified it as a religion. But this point goes even deeper. Even in the Christian West, where the concept of religion originates, many Christians simply wouldn't use the term religion to define what they do. It's a word that seems foreign. 
Jonathan G. Smith has made the point that the concept of religion comes from scholars. It doesn't arise organically. But let's jump about 100 years from Kant to an event that helped create the very idea of world religions. In 1893, the world's Columbian Exposition was held in Chicago. If you've ever heard that Chicago is known as the Windy City, you might be interested to know that the most likely explanation for that moniker has nothing to do with the weather. Instead, it has to do with how boastful Chicagoans were about their city. That exhibition was designed to show just how cool Chicago really was. It was a massive event lasting six months and drawing 27 million people from across the world. And that's in a time when there was no air travel. The largest of the exhibition's many congresses was the Parliament of World's Religions. This was the first formal instance of interreligious dialogue. Although this event was not taken seriously by scholars at the time, it was the first time that representatives of Eastern religions were able to speak on their own rather than having Western scholars speak on their behalf. Despite that remarkable achievement, the attendees at the Congress were overwhelmingly Christian, with Jewish people coming in second. All of the religions of India were represented by just one person and one American Muslim represented all of Islam. There were no representatives of any of the indigenous religions of North America or Africa. The group decided that there are exactly seven world religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism. If you consult current world religion textbooks, you'll see that there's been some expansion of the category to include Baha'i, Jainism, Shinto, Sikhism, and Zoroastrianism. That brings the list to 12. Since it's widely recognized that there are mm, maybe 10,000 religions in the world today, it's hard to understand why only these 12 religions are included. You might ask, what qualifies something as a world religion? If the matter is simply one of size, then it's hard to see why Judaism would qualify. There are less than 15 million Jewish people in the world. By contrast, there are about half a billion Hindus, 1.1 billion Buddhists, 1.8 billion Muslims, and 2.3 billion Christians. Perhaps then world means something like across the world, but then it's hard to see how Confucianism, Taoism, and Jainism, and perhaps others on the list, qualify since they're comparatively localized. As it turns out, there simply is no consensus on what makes something a world religion. It seems to be an honorific without an actual definition. Does the term religion fare any better? Consider this example from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy in which Charles Tolliver defines religion as follows. A religion involves a communal, transmittable body of teachings and prescribed practices about an ultimate sacred reality or state of being that calls for reverence or awe, a body which guides its practitioners into what it describes as a saving, illuminating, or emancipatory relationship to this reality through a personally transformative life of prayer, 
ritualized meditation and or moral practices like repentance and personal regeneration. Let me start by saying that I know Charles and I think he's a very fine scholar. Yet there are some obvious problems with this definition. First off, to what extent do religions have a body of teachings? Many religions are simply not oriented around such things as teachings, and are instead oriented around practices, which Tolliver goes on to mention. Christianity is the example of a religion that revolves around teachings. Let me put that a little bit more strongly. No other religion puts that kind of emphasis on doctrine. Christianity is a total outlier in this respect. For many Christians, what makes you Christian is that you believe a certain set of doctrines. Moreover, Christians make distinctions between different kinds or varieties of Christianity on the basis of which doctrines a particular group believes. Calvinists believe in predestination. Anabaptists don't. Roman Catholics believe things about the Pope and Mary that most Protestants simply reject. Of course, we need to continue to keep in mind that this is a particular feature of Christianity that came about for a very specific reason, namely the Reformation. It's only when you have competing versions of Christianity that you need to find ways to separate and define them. In contrast, Judaism, which most people would think is the closest religion to Christianity, places very little emphasis on what one believes. Judaism is a religion of action and practice. The same is true about Islam. Christians assume that Islam is just like Christianity, except that Muslims believe different things about God. But the reality is quite different. The imperative in Islam is obey. Whereas many Christians, particularly American evangelicals, think that there are certain things you must believe in order to get to heaven. Muslims don't think getting to heaven is about belief. It's about obedience. And let me add that a fundamental problem with American evangelicals, and for that matter, probably Americans as a whole, is that they have remarkably little understanding of Islam. How about the next phrase in Tolliver's definition? An ultimate sacred reality or state of being that calls for reverence or awe. Many religions are non-theistic, which means they are not about God or gods. Buddhism is the largest of non-theistic religions with just over a billion adherents. Yet do those practices necessarily relate to an ultimate sacred reality? In a religion in which ancestor worship is central, ancestors may be taken to be sacred in some sense, though it would be hard to think that they should be regarded as ultimate reality. Further, does religion always have a salvific or transformative effect? Again, this is true regarding Christianity, but it's less obviously true regarding many religions. Here we probably need to distinguish between something being transformative, for example, following the teachings of Confucius could help shape one's life, and salvific, which implies that there is something wrong with the human situation or the world at large that needs saving. That the idea that we need religion or something like religion to fix something in the world is not a basic concept found in all religions. Admitting that his definition is problematic, Tolliver then suggests the following. 
But rather than devoting more space to definitions at the outset, a pragmatic policy will be adopted. For the purpose of this entry, it will be assumed that those traditions that are widely recognized today as religions are indeed religions. It will be assumed then that religions include at least Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and those traditions that are like them. This way of delimiting a domain is sometimes described as employing a definition by examples, an ostensive definition, or making an appeal to a family resemblance between things. It will also be assumed that Greco-Roman views of gods, rituals, the afterlife, the soul, are broadly religious or religiously significant. Given the pragmatic, open-ended use of the term religion, the hope is to avoid beginning our inquiry with this Procrustean bed. In other words, when given the chance to deepen the superficial definition of religion, Tolliver simply avoids the question. But on the basis of what we've seen so far, it should be clear that coming up with anything like a definitive definition of religion is going to be futile. Let's approach this from a different angle. Given the way most people think about religion, three obvious candidates for defining what religion is emerge. One, worshipping gods. Two, conceptions of the afterlife. And three, belief in the spiritual or supernatural. If we take the first, it's clear that belief in gods is not found in Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, and many other religions throughout the world. Moreover, even if we could make sense of religion being about believing in a god or gods, what those gods are like varies considerably. The ancient Greeks, for example, thought of gods as physical beings who resided on Mount Olympus. In the Hebrew scriptures, God is said to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. The three visitors to Abraham are called both men and also angels. And Moses is told that he cannot see God's face. Although Judaism is today considered one of the three monotheistic religions, ancient Judaism had the same polytheistic framework as other Near Eastern cultures of the time. Yahweh was worshipped, but the Israelites also worshipped El, Asherah, and Baal. Judaism only became monotheistic over time. Even if we could say that religion is primarily about gods, then, it's not clear what kinds of gods we're talking about. If we take the second, it's likewise clear that many religions do not have a concept of an afterlife. Death is seen as the end of life, and that's it. Even in Jesus' day, a major group of Jews were the Sadducees, who did not believe in life after death. At that point in time, there was a vibrant debate in the Jewish community about what happens to us after we die. I think it is a safe generalization that religions provide ways of dealing with death, but that's about as far as the similarities go. Some religions prepare us for a life to come. Some help us to come to terms with the reality that there is no other life. All of them have ways of helping those who are left behind. If we consider the third criterion, it becomes clear that the vast majority of religions do not make any distinction between the natural and the supernatural. 
While one might assume that the lack of such a distinction means that the material world is seen as empty and meaningless, the exact opposite is often the case. For many cultures, the very material world in which we live is enchanted and is itself supernatural. In other words, one doesn't need some other realm for the supernatural. So the distinction ends up being meaningless. Even in Christianity, the idea that there is something like a distinct supernatural realm only becomes possible with the advent of modern science, which allowed for a conceptual division between the natural world, guided by the laws of physics, and the supernatural world, which is not subject to such laws. For medieval Christian thinkers, for instance, the supernatural is not some world distinct from this natural world. The current meaning of the word supernatural, some force beyond scientific understanding or the laws of nature, is distinctly modern. We tend to think that religion concerns that which is spiritual. But even in Christianity, the idea that there's a spiritual part of our being that is utterly unlike the material part of our being is a relatively late development. Terms for soul in the Hebrew Bible are nefesh and ruah. The terms in the Christian Bible are spire and pneuma. These terms mean wind, breath, air. They are what makes us alive. They do not indicate some separate thing, but simply mean living being. There are no uses in either sets of scriptures that denote anything like an immortal soul or a soul in the Platonic sense. It is only later in Jewish history that Platonic overtones creep into the Jewish conception of nefesh and ruah. Only in early Christian theology, and quite specifically with Origen, does the idea of an immortal soul begin to be read back into these religious texts. Put another way, Jesus didn't have any concept of the soul as being immortal. We've covered a lot of ground today. What I've tried to do is to present what scholars take to be the original meaning of religio and then show how much that meaning has changed. Yet it should likewise be clear that those two aspects of religio, the idea of the sacred and the binding of a community of the sacred, are still part of religions today. My question then, and the next podcast, is how should we think about the future of religion? Or perhaps we could ask, does religion even have a future? In the previous podcast, we considered the decline of Christianity. For many people, the time for religion has come and gone. Yet I don't see how any of us can function without some concept of what's important in life, which we might call the sacred. And if we consider certain things to be sacred, it only stands to reason that we will see others who have the same or similar notions of the sacred as people with whom we want to associate. But I'll have to save that for the next podcast. Don't forget that On Becoming Now has a presence on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. The show email is simply onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to engaging with you on Twitter and Instagram, as well as hearing from you by way of email.
I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and you've been listening to On Becoming. I hope you'll join us next time.